This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Speak truth. Speak truth. We start. This is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. It's your no good and camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. What's going on, brother? Oh, everything, everything indeed. How are you, sir? I can't I can't complain, man. It's been a pretty good uh, few weeks. Uh was with the kids on spring break. I understand that you guys are doing a little breaking yourself. Yeah. But let me ask you this question, man. I heard from a little birdie that you have a big announcement coming up. Is that true? That is very true. And, and I will say here that that announcement is coming on Monday, uh, on the 19th of April. And it's big. It's big. So it's Monday. So that's soon. OK, yeah, we're, we're not going to ask you what it is, but it's good to know that it's, uh, it's forthcoming. Yes, indeed. I'm excited. Right on. Well, so, so am I, man. Well, as usual, brother, you know, we have a whole lot of stuff to talk about. Um, so I'm going to, as al- as I always do, I'm going to ask our audience to grab their Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. So this first one's kind of a, a tough one. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and how to approach it. And those of you who've been listening to this podcast for a few years, you know that we spent a lot of time, not exclusively, but a lot of time critiquing and challenging white evangelicals, especially to be more true to Christian convictions and compassion when it came to how they were defending and supporting Donald Trump. A lot of the things, in my opinion, some Trump evangelicals were saying in defense of the president were simply unbiblical. I mean, comparing him to King David, uh, some folks were acting like we needed him to save Christianity. Um, These were just things that could not stand up to biblical scrutiny. And on this podcast, we never hesitated to call it out. Uh, When you think about it, we also called out things like The hypocrisy of claiming that character mattered at one point when it came to Clinton and then clearly reneging on that principle when it came and when it was convenient, I guess. uh, And it came to Trump clearly reneging on that principle to maintain political power. Again, never hesitated to call that out. So I think now it's time to call out something else that was completely unbiblical and honestly, in my opinion, disgraceful that came from the Democratic side of the aisle. And we're going to call this out not because these things are equivalent. They're not 
close to equivalent um, in their impact, I should say, but because they violate the same principle, even if it's to a different extent. Uh, We all have to call. I think that we have to call this out. Because the and campaign will always do its best to call out when the gospel has been misrepresented, especially in the public square, especially when you see the intersection of faith and politics. And I got so many calls and texts and emails about Senator Raphael Warnock's Easter tweet. Now, most of the people that were hitting me up, I don't know about you, uh, Chris. And I know me and you uh, went back and forth on it. Most of the people that were hitting me up were hoping that the tweet was fake. Or they were hoping that somehow they misunderstood what the tweet was saying. Now, I will mention, Chris, to be fair, that the tweet was deleted. Um, for whatever, you know, you can tell me how much that means to you. But it was real. And it was just as reprehensible as many thought that it was when they initially saw it. And on the Church Politics Podcast, we cannot give that a pass in good conscience. But I want you to be the judge for yourself, for those who might not have seen it. And and here's what the tweet said. It says, and this, I'm going to try to get through this without choking, but um, it says, the meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are a Christian or not, Through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Um, I thought very hard. And when it comes to Easter, I couldn't think of a worse tweet to tweet out. Now, again, we want to be fair. Someone on his staff said that the tweet wasn't approved by uh, the senator. Um, But they wouldn't say if it reflected his views or not. Which was really odd because you would think that you would want to clear that up pretty quickly if you hadn't approved it and it didn't reflect what you thought. That's a little a little shaky. And here's what gets me, Chris, though. This is this is this is Resurrection Sunday. So somehow on Resurrection Sunday, somehow on Easter Sunday, when children are giving their Easter speeches about how God, how Jesus was hung high with nails in his hands, nails in his feet, a spear, a, a spear through his side. And preachers are sermonizing about the cross and the power of the blood. Somehow, instead of an Easter tweet, we got a humanist manifesto. I don't see any other way to put it. Now, there's a theological side to this conversation and a political aspect to this conversation. And I'll start with what's most important to me, which is the theological side of this conversation. I want to be very clear on one thing. The words in that tweet were really the opposite of what Easter means and what we're supposed to learn from it. It was the antithesis of what the Bible says about the importance of the resurrection. So if you don't get anything else from this podcast, please understand that. To clear the record. There is nothing that transcends the resurrection in meaning, in impact, or in material or spiritual significance. Nothing. Humans cannot. Humans have not. And humans will never be able to save themselves. Never. 
That's the definition of humanism. Humans saving themselves. And you won't find any support of that in the Bible. I can guarantee you, you won't find it anywhere. It's a lie. Now, for full disclosure, I have met uh, Senator Warnock on a few occasions, had some pleasant uh, short conversations. I don't have a, a personal relationship with him, but I do have two very close friends who are pretty high up in his Senate staff team. Uh, two people that I, I love and respect. Uh, and because I know them so well, I know good and well that they didn't approve those tweets. Now, they're not in the job to approve those tweets, I don't think. But I know they wouldn't have done that. Uh, I don't worry about that. These are folks who were part of my crucifix and politics group, which would eventually lead to the and campaign. And again, they're people that I love and respect. My intent with what I'm, I'm saying is not to disparage the senator. Right. Um, we're not just randomly taking shots at anybody. There's nothing random about this. This is a faith in politics conversation. We have no interest in cutting anybody down. We want him to succeed for the people. But on this podcast and in this organization, we will defend the gospel of Jesus Christ at all costs, especially when it comes to something that's in the intersection of faith and politics. So I will say that I respect Senator Warnock as an elected official. I do not respect what he said or what came from his platform. I've commended him on his work on voters' rights on racial justice. I've criticized his position on abortion. I wrote, I even wrote an article defending his sermon on injustice and will do so again if necessary. I've been fair. Held my fire when writers were clearly trying to get me to attack him during the campaign. I wasn't going to do that. But again, I can't respect what came from that platform. And I know that if Trump would have done it, if he would have said it, a lot of us who were quiet would have been all over it, including myself. Now, the other side of this is we have a lot of evangelicals who said nothing when Trump was saying stuff that was unbiblical and doing all this other stuff that now want to jump on this. And this is the problem. This is why we have no credibility, because we want to jump on one thing and we want to ignore the other. We want to talk about when the opposite side does something unbiblical, but we don't want to talk about our side. And so we have no credibility amongst each other. We're not going to make that mistake. We can't in good faith ignore that egregious statement just because it came from someone who's closer to our identity, who's in our party or closer to our circle. It's not personal. It's principle. And if somebody can provide me with some scripture that says that we shouldn't address this, then I'll apologize and repent. But I believe in knowing scripture that scripture says the opposite. And I believe that letting it linger without correction. I believe that for us to act like we didn't see it while we talk about it behind closed doors. Is wrong. I believe that that's more damaging to our brother and the body than addressing it, frankly. So if anyone has a problem with these these conversations, I think you first need to show us the scripture and then you need to show us the lie. We're simply trying to speak the truth and love the best way we know how. But when someone who's supposed to be representing our people misrepresents. It has to be addressed. 
Now, I don't know the brother's motivate what the brother's motivations were. But one thing that I can tell you for sure is that it wasn't humanism. It wasn't progressivism or any other ideology that sustained black people down through the years. Ain't nobody saved us but Jesus because of that cross, because of the blood, nothing else. So let's be very clear about that. So we're going to push back. We're going to reject that statement. Um, and I would hope that something more is said from from that office, but we may not uh, be needing to hold our breath on that. But in doing this, Chris, let me also and then I'll hand it off. Let me also provide you with a better example. Because I think on that very same day, we saw a much better approach to being a Christian in the public square. And that came from my dear brother, Dr. Esau McCauley, an unabashed product of the black Orthodox tradition. This brother sees the moment in a different way. He sees the moment and used his platform to stand 10 toes down on scripture and write an article in the New York Times that was explicitly orthodox. That was explicitly biblical. And he did it so well with prose and illustrations that were so vivid, sweet and moving that even the New York Times had to publish that work. We have one example of a very compromised witness and another who was so determined to glorify God in the world. Was so determined not to have the rocks cry out for him that he wrote a gospel centered piece so compelling that the culture had to stand in awe. We're talking about the New York Times. Also known as the Great Lady, perhaps the world's most prominent newspaper, and they had to share the gospel because of the beauty of his words. If that ain't the God, if that ain't God, I don't know what is. So in a way, Christians, as we all walk into the public square, those are your options. Especially if you want to lead in the public square, you got two paths you can take. Choice is yours. I'm gonna hand it off to you, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to uh, really attempt not to repeat uh, a lot of what you just said, Justin, because I, I, I think that. Uh, those are the prevailing issues, right? The, the, the issues on uh, theology. But if I can pick up where, where you left off um, and talk about the political implications and impact of this, right? Um, because as, as important as the theology is, it was completely unhelpful politically. I mean, to tweet something like that on Easter, would be the wrong thing to do if it were coming from a United States senator who was not a, you know, African-American Baptist preacher, right? Um, because it's Easter. There's no reason on Easter Sunday uh, to put out a tweet with those words. I mean, if, if you are not a part of a Christian uh, tradition, you're not up on uh, Christian theology, Words like transcendent and saved 
like may not mean as much to you. But to talk about transcendency and salvation on Easter uh, in any Christian community is going to have a lot of impact. And I think any senator, even if you absolutely disagree with the idea that Jesus Christ is the one and only way to salvation, even if you disagree with that wholeheartedly, you don't got to talk about it on Easter. I mean, maybe that's if you talk about it 364 days out of the year, maybe that day is the one where you just don't tweet that. Um, it it does unnecessarily antagonize communities of people, uh, which continues to throw this this uh, this wrench into our politics, where it just makes it hard for folks who don't see the world the same way to come together and get practical things done. Because as, as difficult as it is already to do that, it's hard to build broad coalitions across, uh, you know, cultural and ideological bound, boundaries. It's hard to do that already. And so when you're antagonizing people who you disagree with, and I don't know, like I, I'm, I don't even have friends uh, in the senator's staff. I don't know uh, the senator personally. Uh, I cannot speak for his theological views, but even if those words do it like really express his theological viewpoint, there's no need to antagonize folks who celebrate on Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus as the great moment, you know, in our faith that that leads us to salvation. You know, Paul says if Christ is not raised, then we are above all men to be pitied, right? Like if if, if the if the resurrection truly can be transcended by human activity, uh, then, you know, it, it, it just it devastates our faith. Right. So you don't come out on Easter um, to express that kind of a viewpoint, even if it's the actual view that you hold, uh, because it's not helping uh, people come together and do the big things uh, that we need to do. Um, I do think further that. Uh, you know, when you talk about Esau's article in the New York Times, uh, I think the reason you read that in the New York Times uh, and the reason I think folks like Esau are so effective, and I pray that this uh, this podcast and the work that we do at the AIM campaign uh, can, will be effective, is because honest values really are the, the bedrock and the foundation for... Um, for meaningful collaboration, right? Like when we're able to just be open and honest about what we actually believe, uh, then we can, we can begin to have conversation in the public square. But when we cannot be honest or when we refuse to be honest, right? Uh, and, and this goes to, you know, the, the kind of uh, critics as well, right? If, if we won't be honest, right? If we believe that morals are important, um, and moral behavior is important when Bill Clinton is the president, but then we don't believe that when Donald Trump is the president, then it's hard to, to, to make collaboration in the public square because those are not, uh, that's not an honest approach to, to values and an honest approach to principles. Um, you know, when we, when we call out, uh, stuff that, you know, folks on the right do, and then we don't call it out because somebody on the left, uh, does the same thing. That's not an honest approach to principles. It's not an honest approach to values and it makes it hard. Uh, for folks to come together. And so um, I, I would hope that uh, any person in the public square, especially those of us who are people of faith, 
would would kind of hold back on certainly on antagonizing people of faith, um, which which seems to uh, increasingly be something fun to do. But that maybe we'll talk about on another uh, uh, podcast at another time. Uh, but I, I certainly hope that we would that anybody in the public square would refrain refrain from antagonizing people of faith and really antagonizing folks unnecessarily at all. And then those of us who do make comment on this stuff, uh, to just be honest uh, with your principles and with your values, um, you know, and yes, you will take heed sometimes because not everybody exercises that discipline of actually calling out people who, who do the wrong thing, even when they are, you know, in your ideological tribe, in your political party, um, you know, it, it, it has gone badly out of style to do that. Um, but I think that that is the only way uh, that we ever get back to a, an ability to form broad coalitions um, that actually that actually get stuff done uh, in, in the public square. And if, if I can just say, you know, at the end campaign, we really do. Uh, believe in and are kind of guided by, uh, you know, this kind of uh, concern for the poor uh, and for the least in our society. Um, And when we get in this kind of stuck place of, you know, we just celebrate our tribe, we never call people out, uh, you know, we criticize the folks on the other side, uh, never affirm what what somebody does right just because they're on the wrong side of things. Um, it, It actually leads to a stuck place. And stuck works if you're rich, if you're powerful, um, and, and and things are going well for you. Stuck works, but when when you're poor, when you're suffering, um, stuck doesn't work. You you need to see progress and see things get done. And none of this, uh, neither the tweet nor the the quietness from many folks who would have said something about it, were the person who who have made the tweet. Um, you know, from a different tribe, from a different uh, ethnic uh, and racial background, from a different political party, all that stuff, just know that your, your silence, um, that tweet, all of it, just know that it's actually setting things back and making it less likely that stuff is going to happen that actually impacts uh, the lives of people who need it the most. Yeah, you said something that, that, that really, you know, about how this can antagonize people. And that's the interesting thing to me, because even folks who we know are either agnostic, you know, senators who are agnostic, who just aren't Christians or anything else, they usually leave Easter alone. Right. Like we they say, I might not agree with you. I'm gonna let you have your day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it, it leads you to say, why in the world would a Christian say something like that? You know, I mean, why, why would you take that opportunity to to shoehorn some humanist rhetoric into such an important day. I'm not I'm not sure that it was trying to rub people the wrong way. I almost feel like, it, you know, we, we don't know what's in the brother's head, but based off context, it almost seems like you're looking for a pat on the back, almost using Easter to 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 get the applause of men, which actually makes this worse. And it made me think about, Chris, how this kind of happens, you know, for some reason, sometimes because of the pressures that are put on black people, because the truth of the matter is when you run a campaign, when you're looking for, you know, when you're looking for exposure and all that, you got to go outside of your your community to do that a lot of times. And so what we see, and I've seen this from Republicans and Democrats, uh, black folks, 
is an effort to show people I'm so I'm more conservative than I'm black, but I'm more conservative than the other folks. Or I'm, I'm progressive, but I'm so much more progressive. You're trying to almost prove yourself and get validation from those tribes and going out of your way to do that. Right. And you see it so much like some of the, the most conservative voters, it's like you're going out of your way to prove your conservatism or now you're going out of the way to prove your progressivism to these folks. Be you. We voted for you to you. And this I mean, the brother might have this theologically. He might have this position. But to your point, at this moment, why would you why would you express that position in that way at that very moment? Unless there's some other kind of motivation. Are you trying to show people how progressive you are or prove to them that you can help turn a lot? Because a lot of black Christians were upset. Yeah, it was painted in the media, in the Washington Post. Oh, the evangelicals are coming. No, 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 no. The calls that I got, except for a few, were from black Christians who really don't have a voice because folks always want to act like we're super progressive. It's not true. Go to Chris's church. Go, Go to Charlie Dates' church. I mean, all over. And so the pressure... And the people who were upset were black folks. And it's, it's really hard. Right? You might not have. No, was, it's really hard because the folks on the right are going to jump on it and the media is going to have a field day with that and not talk about what yeah. folks in the black church uh, are actually thinking about that, um, which feeds that beast. Right. Because it's, it, it is then kind of giving that that pat on the back. And, and it becomes a culture. Black people fall into it. But but it's become the culture really of our politics where we are so like we, we're not trying to make progress like legislators are not even trying to make legislation. You're, you're just you know, we're happy to to do a thing, tweet about it, get applause for it, get some donations from it. But nothing actually got done. Right. And that's that's just become the culture. It's sad. Yeah, man. And especially as minorities in public office, it seems like you always have folks on the left or the right trying to use you to be what they want you to be. Right. We got this dude. We can get him. We can't fall for that, man. And I don't want to get too deep into this because, again, we don't know exactly what the thinking was. But based on context clues, there's not a whole lot of other reasons why that makes sense. I don't think it makes sense at all. But if you look at it just from the political side of it, you know, who's trying who are you trying to oppress? You know, whenever I look at um, political rhetoric or talking points. You're always looking at what's being said, but what they, do they want you to hear? And who is the audience that they're really trying to get to and, and express something to? And so when I look at that, it's just a very questionable tweet, man. And uh, I hope we don't see it again. I'm glad it was erased, but it leaves some very big questions. And again, I'll say, you know, for the Christians out there who want to run for office, who want to be in some other ways, kind of um, a, a leader in the civic space, Man, you got to represent who you are. You got to be confident. You can understand civic pluralism and represent everybody. But be who you are, man. Stand on your own, too, and be confident enough to just work in it with integrity, man, and and not kind of pull pull stunts that really hurt, you know, your your public witness. Anything else, Chris? No, I mean, I, I think you said it. I think it's uh, also an opportunity to exhort those uh, who listen to this program who do believe in that. Um, you know, there, there's a part for the the grassroots community to play in the civic discourse. Um, and, you know, that's about showing love to those who do stand up, you know, because as much, uh, you know, conversation as we've had about, um, you know, about this tweet, Esau did write that article in the New York Times. And I mean, he's not a United States senator, uh, but 
you know, let's make sure that we're like showing love to somebody like Dr. Esau McCauley, who's, uh, who's, who's doing his thing, like doing that public witness. And wherever you see it happening in the public uh, square, any public person elected or, or otherwise, uh, it's always important. You might think that your little tweet of support, your, your email, your, uh, you know, whatever kind of support that you lend doesn't mean anything. But having been around a lot of elected officials and other public people, uh, that is the kind of thing that continues to give people confidence uh, to, to really lead the right way. So um, it's an exhortation to those who are in public life and want to be in public life. Uh, it's also an exhortation to to the grassroots. Uh, we have a part to play as well. That's real. Oh, uh, choose ye this day whom you will serve. Uh, and that's got to be real for you when you step into that public square, man, because what you say is heard and it matters. We're taking a late break here. We've been kind of going, we, we ran through it, but we're going to take a, a quick break and then we'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. We are back on the Church Politics Podcast. We had to discuss a peculiar tweet, but now we want to get into some stuff that uh, has been going on uh, in, in other spaces in politics. Uh, many of you know, especially if you've been listening to this podcast, uh, the uh, after passing the American Rescue Plan, the, the Biden administration very quickly moved to addressing the country's infrastructure needs. And so uh, Joe Biden and his team uh, presented what was a two trillion dollar plus infrastructure plan that he's described as a draft document of ideas. Uh, he's saying that uh, compromise in, is inevitable. So he's saying, hey, we're putting this out there. Let's have a conversation because he's saying he wants bipartisan engagement. Uh, and so we'll see if that happens. Um, there has already been some talk about doing this as well through reconciliation, which would mean they wouldn't have to get uh, more than uh, uh, 50 votes. So we'll see how they proceed um, and what procedures they use to kind of to kind of get this going and how long, how much of a true uh, a negotiation this is. Now, he's proposed to pay for this with a tax increase, uh, to, uh, a corporate tax increase. So uh, we know that there was a, a, a cut in taxes when it came to corporations under Trump. Now they're talking about kind of raising taxes. And interesting enough, folks like Jeff Be uh, Bezos of Amazon has agreed with this. He's, he's encouraged. He said, raise, you know, go ahead and raise the corporate tax. Some people are a little bit <laughs> uh, uh, some people aren't falling for it. Some people are calling his bluff on this. And he's saying, well, well Jeff Bezos probably is OK with this tax increase because they're still not going to have to pay taxes. What a lot of people will point out is that you can increase the corporate tax rate all you want. But if you still have all these loopholes, then they end up not paying it anyway. So you have these folks and maybe he's not, you know, maybe he's being sincere, but you have some of these folks who may be coming out for this, knowing that they're still, you know, they can get the good publicity for it, but knowing that they're still not going to pay a whole lot of taxes. So we'll see if that's one way they're going to pay for it. I would imagine that it, it will probably go up if they're I don't know how they pay for it without, you know, uh, that going up. But the problem they have is how much can it go up? Because Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who is kind of like in control of the Senate right now, just because of his positioning as a moderate who is willing to push back, uh, he's against it. He doesn't want to raise it as high as uh, um, the Biden administration does. And so we'll see if he's willing to put up a fight or if, he, or if he's just posturing. But he has said that he has some very serious concerns about that. 
Now, Chris, what's been interesting to me in this whole conversation about infrastructure is that the definition of infrastructure has become an issue. Right now, some of you know, I, I, I've done a lot of work in infrastructure. Uh, I ran the campaign for several infrastructure ref- referendums here in Atlanta. The last one I did was to raise two point five billion dollars for uh, transportation infrastructure in Atlanta because Atlanta had an almost billion dollar infrastructure backlog. And Chris, the truth is the nation as a whole is in no better shape. Right. Our infrastructure is crumbling and this is a much needed bill. We need this. We need to get it right. But this is a much needed bill because our infrastructure is crumbling. And so the funny thing is that there's been this real debate about what actually is infrastructure, because a lot of Republicans would say a lot of the things that are in that bill right now. And we're glad that it's just a, a, a something we can use for negotiation, because a lot of the things that are in that bill right now actually aren't infrastructure. Now, for me, when I was going around in these campaigns and I was trying to explain to people what infrastructure was, I always started by saying that infrastructure is the skeleton of the city. Right. It's your roads. It's your sidewalks. It's your bridges. I'd also add water infrastructure in there. So it's your pipes. I think it's fair to add broadband and things like that in there because they, they are a part of kind of our technological infrastructure. And it's and it's really needed. However, Chris. Uh, some Democrats are expanding the definition of infrastructure as, for whatever reason, progressives have a tendency to do. And so, for instance, you have uh, Senator Gillibrand, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, who tweeted this out. Gillibrand said that paid leave, family paid leave is infrastructure. Child care is infrastructure. Caregiving is infrastructure. And that is something that should remain or be in the bill. Now, Chris, you know that I I support all those things. Um, But they're not infrastructure. Uh, To me, whether I support it or not, words have to mean something. If the administration is selling an infrastructure bill, then the bill needs to be about infrastructure. If it's about more than infrastructure, then it needs to be clear that it's about more than infrastructure. Let's get paid leave of paid leave bill. Let's talk about child care. Let's talk about all that stuff. But the public should be clear what's in it. Uh, We have enough false pretenses in politics that we don't need to play around with words when we know we're being intellectually dishonest, when we know we're pushing things through. That's not really what we're saying it, it is, right? Um, There may in any big bill like that, there may be a few things that don't nicely fit into the definition. But to have, you know, billions of dollars of stuff that is simply not infrastructure, I think is a bad move, not because I don't want them, but 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 because I think that just doesn't help our politics and language matters and people need to know we mean what we say. What are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I certainly am of the opinion that like infrastructure can't mean everything. Right. Because like you said, like it's important that words do mean something. Um, I'm I'm unsure. You know, I always hesitate to go so hard on these things because I'm like, I'm sure at the White House, you know, they have somebody smarter than me. Um, But, you know, when you go to the White House website, the, the actual plan, the proposal is called the American Jobs Plan. Um, but they discuss it 
in the, the, the language of an infrastructure uh, proposal. And so my first question is, is it an infrastructure proposal or is it a jobs proposal? Because those are not necessarily the same thing. They definitely um, impact one another. And even if the language that we were using was that this was going to be an infrastructure driven uh, bill, uh, but it's about jobs or equity or any of those things, which like you said, I'm, I'm for that. Uh, I'm for using infrastructure uh, to get to those things because there are a lot of people across a lot of, uh, across the, the broad kind of cross section of uh, partisan and ideological uh, viewpoints that want infrastructure. Uh, and I'm, I'm good with using infrastructure to get to, uh, you know, jobs and uh, equity, um, you know, economic equity. Uh, I'm, I'm for it. Uh, but I think it, even just a, a small change of saying that this is going to be an infrastructure driven, um, you know, piece of legislation. Uh, so the infrastructure is going to be the thing that drives it. But it's really about jobs and it's about uh, equity. Um, you know, I personally feel like you could get more people bought into that. Um, I feel like it, it would give, um, you know, progressives and, and, and folks who want some of these things out of the bill, as, as somebody who, who does want to see some of these things come out of the bill, I feel like it gives a better argument um, and a better road as this goes through the actual legislative process to actually go to the mat and fight. Uh, because we didn't, if you if you start off saying it's an infrastructure bill, that you actually are giving ammunition uh, to folks who want to oppose some of these other things uh, to come back and say with legitimacy, well, that stuff is not infrastructure. But if our starting position was to say, hey, this is going to be an infrastructure driven bill, um, you know, it's, but but the bill is about jobs and equity. We're going to use infrastructure to drive jobs and economic equity. Then you can actually go to the mat. Right. When you have, you know, many of the infrastructure questions kind of solved, you know, we're solving infrastructure, we're, we're solving roads, we're solving bridges. You can actually go to the mat on uh on debate and negotiation and say, hey, we, we did the infrastructure piece, but we haven't gotten the jobs right and we haven't gotten the equity right. So we haven't gotten it, this legislation right. But if you started off saying, well, it's infrastructure, you, you leave yourself in a tough spot trying to prove then that at home health care is infrastructure, that, um, you, you know, uh, 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 better education is infrastructure. And it's a little, it's more difficult. You're giving yourself a more difficult job to actually make the case that those things are infrastructure. Uh, when, when you could simply, in my view, um, talk about it honestly, this is going to be an infrastructure driven proposal. Uh, but, but what we actually need, because that's the view that I take. I mean, you know, you, you can fix roads and bridges and, and don't do anything in the lives of people. Um, to, to help, you know, the right type of folks be able to take advantage of the, the jobs and, and new opportunities in the economy that are going to take uh, that, that, that may become possible because of the actual physical infrastructure. You can do that physical infrastructure work and, and still leave a lot of people behind. And I don't want to see that happen. But again, I think it's I think you could start the debate there. Right. Um, and say there's going to be an infrastructure driven proposal. Uh, which is what it seems like to me uh, in the first place. And I guess that that goes back to, you know, folks who are around me know that my, my number one rule of public affairs is never try to make like some make, never try to make it seem like something is not. 
Um, and so that's kind of my take on it. I, I just think that we're giving ourselves a more difficult job down the road by starting in this place. Yeah, it's tough. And I just think it hurts the discourse. I mean, to have, you know, folks coming out saying stuff is infrastructure, that's clearly not infrastructure. And then you have this kind of like tribal mob behind them saying, yeah, this is now infrastructure. It's like, come on, this is why nobody believes you. Right. This is no when you say something, this is why people are like, okay, you'll say anything. Um, And so I'm with you. If it's bigger than that, then it should be sold as bigger than that. Right. Because when you come out and you talk about a uh, a two trillion dollar infrastructure plan, that's what people are thinking you're getting. And if it's more than that, it needs to be uh, expressed that way, because in many instances, people aren't even they don't even know the name of the bill. They know how the president or whoever is selling it from the bully pulpit. And then they see what's being tweeted out and all this other stuff. And, you know, I'm just not comfortable with people taking language and stretching it in ways that they know they're stretching it and just expecting us because they say it confidently that we're supposed to just go along with it. So I hope this moves forward. I hope the language doesn't stop this from moving forward. It's my understanding that there's supposed to be like a bipartisan gang of eight. Uh, I'm guessing Manchin and some other folks would be in that who are going to present a bill that's about, I think, eight hundred billion dollars. So it'd be much smaller. Um, because they want to get something done. But I'll say this, if if the if the Republicans don't come up with something, a plan, and they're just saying no, that's a bad look. We need plans. We need, you know, we need a real negotiation. And I just, you know, I've said this before, I don't have a lot of confidence or any confidence, really, that Mitch McConnell is going to be able to do that. I mean, the way that he's kind of stood in front of this and, and just said kind of no, and we're not going to do what, the, what you're not going to do. Dude, you got to be about more than that. Our infrastructure is literally crumbling. You have bridges that are that should have been fixed up a decade ago, right? That are still the same, you know, in the same condition or worse condition. And their only infrastructure only gets worse. So it's not like it stays in the same point. But I'll let you finish this off, Chris. Now, I'll just go back to the same thing. I mean, infrastructure is great, but infrastructure conversation is 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 very inside the, the beltway. It's something that uh, folks in government and, and business talk about. Everyday folks, I think, would actually be touched more if if you were talking about this as a, a in, an infrastructure driven bill that was going to impact uh, jobs and uh, economic equity because people are feeling that in their in their lives. And this actually does reach them uh, in those places. I just see no real reason. You're, you're only losing parts of your coalition. Uh, with this language. So, um, you know, I, I, I personally hope that maybe somebody will hear this or hear something else and begin to pivot on this language because it, it just seems like it's not the best uh, way to go about it. Yeah, I agree with you. And we, hey, we got some Senate staffers and, uh, you know, some staffers on the Hill who do listen to the to Church Politics podcast. So hopefully they will, will take this back. Uh, but one more break and then we will... Uh, kind of conclude with a another interesting conversation. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. We talk a lot about, you know, our system and how people just don't have confidence in our leaders. They don't have confidence in our institutions and leaders really need to be very deliberate about building that confidence, about staying away from anything that just doesn't look right. And I think we found another instance where that hasn't happened. According to several outlets, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband bought millions of dollars of Microsoft stock, uh, according to their financial disclosures. So uh, if 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 uh, for the the folks who are married to people in Congress, they also have to file disclosures. Right. And then say, you know what you've been investing in and all this financial stuff uh, since the purchase that stock, the shares of that stock climbed, I think, almost 12 percent within like a week or something like that. Here's the kicker, though, because it's not there's nothing wrong with them just buying stocks in itself. Right. That's not not bad. The problem is. Some believe that the climb is in part due to a lucrative government contract that Microsoft got worth $22 billion. Um, that's a lot of money. Now, we've talked about, and I don't think it was that long ago, we've talked about how many millionaires are in Congress. They don't make millions of dollars, but you got all these different millionaires in Congress and the ethics rules about insider trading and all that. They make the rules for themselves. And so you get into situations like this. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't know enough to say they've done something illegal. They've done something unethical. What I can tell you is that it stinks. And in a situation like we're in, when you just don't have the trust of the people, it's best just to stay away from stuff like that and create rules that might keep you from making, you know, $10 million next year. But restore trust in the institution. And so I think it's time to come up with rules, ethics rules, when it comes to this stock trading and having information or possibly being uh, uh, having access to this information that could enrich you. But who's paying for that stuff? And what does it say? You know, where, what does it say about our focus and where our ethics are in this country? So I'll pass it to you, Chris, but it's, it's just not something I'm comfortable with. I'm super not comfortable with this. You know, I have uh, spent a lot of time on. Um, on, on issues of just kind of like democracy reform uh, in general, re- whether it be like trying to register young folks to vote or reform the way we draw political maps, get money out of politics. Uh, and and um, it's it's saddening to me because really, especially in, in my work that I've done at the Mikva Challenge, which is a, an organization that, that gets high schoolers involved in civics. I think sometimes people don't necessarily realize the, the jeopardy um, and the fragility of our democracy, right? When, it, when young people don't trust 
the basic institutions of our democracy. Um, that is a, a very, very dangerous uh, uh, place to be um, in the culture. And stuff like this just doesn't help to restore that, right? Like, not only should we not be seeing stuff like this, like the Speaker of the House, uh, you know, her household being enriched by tens of millions of dollars just after a company got a big contract with the government. And, you know, it, 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 that doesn't restore trust for sure. It erodes it. And we actually have a huge restoration job uh, that we have to do uh, inside of this current generation uh, to restore a lot of trust in our democracy. And I think that we need to be making uh, huge moves to change the way, um, you know, money works in our politics, uh, how, you know, elected officials and even uh, those who have, uh, you know, served in public office um, recently are able to enrich themselves. You know, it, it's not a coincidence that so many people are able to do that. We need to be changing all those things. We need to be doing it aggressively and we need to be doing it publicly so that we can restore trust. And every time something like this happens, uh, again, we can't say that there was something particularly nefarious, that they're not enough uh, facts available to say that. Um, what we can say is that it doesn't look good and it does nothing to restore uh, folks' uh, trust in, in, in our, our democracy and the basic institutions of our democracy. Those are the facts. So hopefully we can do better, man. Hopefully we get some folks in there that are willing to say, you know what? It's not about my interest. It's about the institution. It's about the country. Uh, so we need to keep pushing for that. Oh, man, as always, man, always appreciate talking to you uh, and camp. You know, we 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 do this and it takes us a lot of time. We do a lot of study. Uh, we would love your support. Uh, you can support the and campaign at andcampaign.org, uh, or you can support the podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash church politics to support what we're doing. Uh, we're a lean organization. We're resourceful. We are scrappy and we'll keep being that way. But we need you not just to hear us, but to join us and to help us out when you can. Uh, as always, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ until next time, Aunt Kim. I'll let you. Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. I said kingdom. kingdom. Come through me. Rest in me, kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.